Today's reading is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Thanks, Helen. Good morning, church family. Happy Father's Day. This day is yours a day to celebrate and to let you know you are loved and appreciated. Your four-year-old will think you're a hero. Your 14-year-old might not, but hang in there when they get to their 30s, they'll think you have grown up quite nicely. <laughs> and when you become grandparents, you become a hero all over again. They bless you. So for those here who are sad, perhaps missing your father or the father of your children, or you can't get to your father's because of the closed borders, we are glad you are here. 
And we pray this morning that we will be comforted by the love of God, our good, good Heavenly Father. It's truly a memorable Father's Day for me. I'm terrified, but I'm blessed. Father's Day falls on the second Sunday of June in Malaysia. A call from Peter Scott on the 18th of June, three days before that, was unmistakably divine. His call inviting me to speak came while I was texting my niece to organize a Father's Day lunch for my dad. And I was gobsmacked, and I think he was too, at the timing of it all. And Peter wisely said, just pray. So thank you, God, for the courage to say yes, and to Pastor Peter and the team for their prayers and for sharing this space with me. Wait till your father gets home. That was how it was like for us when my brother and I were young. Dad always had the last word. He used to work away from home, returning only on the weekends, and we would eagerly wait for him to come home so that we could watch Mission Impossible with the only family friends who owned a black and white TV then. He would decide if we deserved that treat at the end of the week. Of course, dear mum, bless her, she would sweeten him up for us. And today, it is now dad who waits for us to come home. He has a smart TV and he doesn't have a clue on how it works. And he can't have the last word anymore. And when you get to 64, you're just not sure what to do with your dad. Strange times for us all indeed. We realize now nobody has the last word on anything. We thought we did. As I was mulling over how we were going to care for my dad, I was reminded of the waiting father in the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus knows all about waiting fathers. Something shifted within me. You've got this, Lord. You have the last word here. In the parable of the prodigal son that Helen read to us, I discover a waiting father who welcomes a willful son home and a father who pleads with a work-focused son to join the party. Jesus skillfully unveils the unconditional, extravagant love of a father that blew the minds of his audience. They had never seen a father like that in their first century household. In the beginning of the chapter, Luke records that Jesus overhears the muttering and the complaints of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. In other words, Jesus was hanging out with the wrong crowd. Not a very fair comment, I would say, because in chapter 14, Jesus had been to eat in the home of a prominent Pharisee. These Pharisees and teachers of the law held watch parties too, you see. They were the religious policemen, so to speak, who would watch if Jesus was going to heal and break the Sabbath rule or any of the laws in their book, in their rule book. How did Jesus respond to them? He spoke in parables, so they would have something to twitter about. So verse 11 says, this father has two sons. It was not unusual for a Jewish father to distribute his estate before he died. The older son would get two-thirds, and the younger son would be entitled to one-third. But in this case, it's the younger son who is demanding his share. And I'm sure it broke his father's heart. It was less like saying to his father, I can't wait for you to die. 
just give me my share now. It was legal, yes, definitely, but not loving. Just like what happens today, right? Many things may be legally right, but relationally hurtful. The father could have put the guilt trip on his son or made a deal with him, but he said nothing. There was no lecture and no dramas. The whole community would have come to know about this as he would have had to make the necessary arrangements for this to happen. The son knew the law, that he could have his share sooner rather than later, and he and decides and chooses, give me my share now. We have a God-given freedom of choice, don't we? But there is a God-given conscience that triggers the senses when the choices we make bring painful consequences. This young man's choice lands him in a pig pen with no money, no friends, and the only food around are pig pods, and that too wasn't available. I've exchanged the good food, love and security of a kind and generous father for this. What a mess. The hurting brings him to his senses, and he realizes that he has not only sinned against his father, but against heaven. The penny drops for him, and he decides to go home. It says that the father sees his son coming from afar. He's so filled with compassion that he runs. The most unbecoming thing for a Middle Eastern father to do. Because the first century father never, never ran. He had to hitch up his tunic in order not to trip. And bearing his legs was a shameful thing. And how the watch party listening and twittering among themselves would have been horrified. The father has to run because the community would get to his son if they knew he was returning. I read that it was a custom in those days that if a son returned after squandering the family inheritance, the community would break a big pot in front of him and yell, you are now cut off from your people. The father runs, willing to shame himself and take the shame of his son upon himself. Love, not anger, explodes in his heart. He's overcome by such joy that he doesn't even listen to his son's confession, but embraces and kisses him. He calls for his servants to put the best rope on him, a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. This is no servant attire. He calls for a feast to celebrate the return of his son who was dead and is alive again. Only the father could save the day for this son and restore his sonship in the family. When the community witnesses this emotional reunion, it is clear there would be no pot ceremony to disown the son. The son has returned, the father has welcomed him home, and he has the last word. Jesus is unveiling the deeply relational heart of his father. The application is crystal clear. His father seeks and saves the lost, forgives the repentant, and grants mercy to the one who comes home and throws a party to celebrate. God the Father welcomes sinners. That was the message for the first century audience, and it's the same message for you and me this morning. God sent his son Jesus to take the shame on the cross on our behalf. He welcomes us before the community can get to us, 
to reject us or shame us. 1 John 3 says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is who we are. John 1.12 says, To those who receive Jesus, believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, totally legal and absolutely grace-filled. My dad forgets the events of the day, but he never forgets the day more than 70 years ago when he, like the prodigal son, came home. Brought up in a godly home, he chose rather to go his own way. And one day, restless and searching at the age of 19, dad walked into a church service in my hometown, and he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached. The floodgates broke open when he realized, like the youngest son, how he had exchanged the joys of a godly home for a freedom he thought could give him meaning and happiness. He committed his life to Jesus, and there was no more give me father. It became make me father. He became not the hired servant, but the serving son in his father's house. And that hasn't stopped. Nineteen years later, I heard the same gospel of Jesus Christ in that same church by a visiting evangelist who said that God does not have grandchildren. Being born in a Christian home doesn't make you a child of God. That triggered a decision to make Jesus my personal savior. There was an altar call for prayer. My brother went forward, but I stayed behind, too petrified to go forward. But Jesus heard my prayer. He found me and forgave me of my sin and made him his daughter right there in my seat 52 years ago. My dad's story has become my story too. God the Father waits to welcome you home. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering and complaining, but not the sinners of the tax collectors around Jesus. They were over the moon. The prodigal returning to a waiting father was their story too. You may feel like a lost son in a pig pen because of the decisions that you have made or others in your life have made. This story could be your story too. The prodigal son found his father running towards him as soon as he decided in his heart that he was going home. He's the same father pursuing you this morning. He's deeply relational. He's a deeply relational, loving father who loves you more than anybody ever can and ever will. The parable continues. So parents, what do you do when one child comes to his senses and the other loses his? Or when one child says, give me, whilst the other says, you haven't given me? They do it differently these days, I hear. Verse 25 says, the servant brings news that the oldest son is furious and is refusing to join the party. The father goes out to plead with him to come in. Where's the party for me? Fumes the older brother. All these years I've been slaving for you and you have never and I've never disobeyed you and you have, haven't even given me a young goat. This son of yours squanders it all and you kill a fattened calf for him. The willful son repented and came home, but this work-focused son didn't see the need of repenting and he didn't realize that he was lost. 
because performance is not the father's focus. He calls him son. My son, he says, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. The son who knew the ropes missed the relationship with his father. He was in his father's home, but he missed the father's heart. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law stopped their twittering and are now listening intently. Is the father going to cancel the celebration? Surely the big brother has some influence here. But no, there's no record of the older brother's response. Did he come to his senses? Only the father's words ring in my ears. My son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. Isn't Jesus reminding us of this key truth, that it is God the Father who has the last word? Isn't Jesus unveiling his Father's work, that his is a father and son team who saves the day? It reminded me of Jesus' words on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Wasn't that a prayer for those who have not come to their senses? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were rejoicing, thinking they had scored a victory with their plotting to put Jesus on, to death on the cross. They were now ready to celebrate. The soldiers were dividing his clothes among themselves even before Jesus died. They were wanting his clothes as an inheritance, mind you, missing the plot altogether. There were two thieves who hung on each side of Jesus. One came to his senses when he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom? I tell you the truth. Today you will be in paradise, was Jesus' response. Whenever you want God's perspective on any situation, look at the cross, my friends. It turns, the right side, it turns things right, the right side up in this upside-down world. Everything ends and begins at the cross. Law books get shut. Grace books open. Mercy jumps out and grace pours in right to the very end of life. We, Peter and I, heard a message more than 20 years ago before immigrating to Perth that's taught us a valuable lesson that has shaped us and is still shaping us today. We had taken a trip to Brisbane with our three sons, and we had a chance to attend church there. It was before Christmas, and the message was, the best gift you can give yourself this Christmas is the gift of forgiveness. The timing of that message, too, was unmistakably divine. We were going through a pretty tough time in church ministry. We were hurting and God knew we were hurting. And that message was a plea to let it go. Forgive. I have forgiven you, so you forgive. Don't wait for the feeling. Just make the decision. And while preparing this message, I was reminded how we had become like the older brother. And God just stopped us in our tracks. We were in the ministry, knew the ropes, but had missed the father's heart. And our children were watching all the time. How gracious God has been to us. That message followed us home in a city as a welcome gift from that church. It is said when you forgive a person, it is like setting a prisoner free, only to find out that that prisoner is you. 
And you know what else? It takes a lifetime to learn to practice forgiveness and to walk in that freedom. Because you have to resolve each time you are misunderstood, ignored, stabbed in the back, treated unfairly, think I don't deserve this, or why me, God? You have to resolve not to enter into the prison of unforgiveness towards anyone or God. And when you cry, Lord, help me, he sends his Holy Spirit to take over and gives you a strength you never thought existed in you. And when you fail, he prompts you a reminder to give yourself this gift of forgiveness. Gospel love never disappoints us. It says in Romans 5, 5. So let us, church family, take our cue from the Father heart of God this morning. If we love and forgive, like how we have been loved and forgiven, wouldn't, the, wouldn't there be less complaining and muttering and more joy and rejoicing in our homes and in our parties? Dear dads, may God help you to stay on course. You can never be a perfect father, but you have a perfect heavenly father who calls you into a relationship with him. The best gift you give your children is God's love and forgiveness. It's a legacy that outlives you. If you are a child struggling to love your father, the best gift for, you, for your dad is your forgiveness. For mothers who are playing the role of fathers, the extravagant love of God offers you grace upon grace, makes perfect every weakness, and tops up what is lacking. As for me, my heavenly father says, I can love your dad better than you. Just wait. Walk with me, and I'll show you how. In this hurting world, let us raise the call of the waiting father, who says, come home and join the party, and then show them Jesus, the risen son. Oh, happy day. So let's set the tone of joy in our father's house this morning as we seek his face and seek his heart and as we pray together as his family. Father God, thank you. We are grateful. We love you. We ask that you bless our dear dads today. How great is your love lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. We praise you for your unconditional love. We confess that on so many occasions, we have missed the message of your heart. We have exchanged your goodness for what we, we are in our limited capacity have thought was good. Forgive us, we pray. Thank you, dear Heavenly Father, that whenever we fall, it is you who pick us up. You pick up the shattered pieces, piece by piece, and you show us Jesus. We wait for your perfect love to have the last word in our current circumstances. And we pray this in your Son's mighty name. Amen.